Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Later this hour, Home State View. We continue our series of conversations with journalists who've covered the political careers of current presidential candidates for many years. I'll talk with a South Carolina politics reporter, Caitlin Byrd, about Nikki Haley. That's toward the end of the program. But first, well, this year kept journalists busy reporting on a wide variety of news for the first part of this program. We'll look back at some of the most important news covered by reporters from IPR and the Midwest Newsroom. In the next half hour, I'll check in with a half a dozen reporters. And let's start with IPR reporter Grant Gerlock. Hi, Grant. Hey, Ben. Let's talk first of all about the IPR series. I think you're the editor of this series uh, on water quality. Uh, why did we tackle water quality? That's <laughs> a question that answers itself if you listen to this program and our IPR news team. But uh, remind us uh, why water quality is such a, a, a big topic. Well, because of the, the challenges we face with uh, nutrients, uh, contaminating waterways, uh, and there are other emerging threats on the horizon with uh, things like PFAS. But we were really focused on what has happened in the last decade since Iowa adopted what we call our, our nutrient reduction strategy. This became the statewide policy uh, plan, kind of a framework to address the nutrient pollution issues the, the state faces, largely because of runoff from farm fields. And this was uh, adopted, like I said, May of 2013, a decade ago, to try to reduce the nutrient load in Iowa streams and and lakes by 45%. And this is part of a larger goal uh, throughout the Mississippi watershed to uh, reduce the size of the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, which is caused by high nutrient loads being flushed into the Gulf through the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And one of the aspects you pointed to or reported on in this series was that the Iowa Nutrient Reduction Strategy, now 10 years old, uh, has voluntary measures that have not really worked, have they? No. One way to look at it is just to look at the the numbers that are are showing the load in the river, and those really haven't changed a lot over the last 10 years. There's another way to look at it uh, through modeling that was developed by Iowa State University, and they... Uh, they predict the impact of different changes to the landscape. So farmers use no-till agriculture. That could uh, can make a change. They use cover crops. That could change. And what they found looking at that modeling is that there has been an impact on uh, phosphorus by controlling erosion. But the amount of, of nitrate, uh, according to the model, has actually increased because mm-hmm. there's more land in crop production compared to the baseline period that they compare it to. So many things you covered in this valuable series, the nitrate levels, uh, the voluntary measures, uh, also how to fund clean water, plans for whitewater trails in rivers, uh, in downtown, along rivers in downtown uh, Des Moines. Uh, listeners should uh, really check out IPR.org to, to give a listen to the, uh, the super water quality series here. Let's move on, though, with this quick uh, survey of... Uh, uh, what you've been uh, doing, um, covering in, in this past year. Education savings accounts, a big change here. Uh, 5,000 more students were approved for funding than estimated when the law passed. Um, t- tell us what's developed there this year. 
This is our, the Iowa's new education savings account uh, law and program. So starting this school year, uh, the state made available $7,635 per student uh, to attend private school. Uh, more than 29,000 students initially applied, although a lot of those were duplicate applications. As you said, in the end, it was almost 19,000 applications that were approved by the state, including students in 96 out of 99 counties. What we don't know quite yet is what that enrollment actually looks like of, of those almost 19,000 students. How many of those were actually able to enroll in a private school in the state? We know that around 60% of those applications came from existing private school students. So you, ex- you would expect they had a seat. But that remaining portion, how many of them actually made it into a, a private school? And that'll impact the overall price tag of that program going forward. Mm-hmm. And in just a very few words, remind us what critics have said about these ESAs. That they are diverting funding away from public schools and creating competition that they don't feel is is actually equal based on the requirements that are placed on public schools that are, are not necessarily placed on private schools. Uh, private schools are, are con- allowed to continue their selective admissions process. And they claim that will allow private schools to weed out the students they don't want and take the ones that they do want and leave uh, the rest for the public schools to engage in. Also, new state laws having to do uh, with public schools that prohibits instruction related to gender identity, sexual orientation, also banning some school library books from uh, school libraries. Um, how I guess a uh, question here is how these new laws have been implemented. Uh, what can you tell us about how that is a developing story? We've been hearing about schools uh, pulling dozens of different books off the shelf. It very much changes from district to district, and there will be a lot coming on this still. There's a hearing in federal court on Friday for two lawsuits that are challenging some or all of this law trying to block enforcement, which is supposed to start on January 1st. So there will be a lot more to come on the books aspect, how it affects the the rights of LGBTQ students in schools as schools try to figure out how to implement a law that they claim is confusing to try to figure out what they're supposed to do. Yeah. And in in the final minute, Grant, remind us what have harsh uh, opponents said about these measures? That it's... uh, that it targets LGBTQ students and discriminates against their ability to express their identities in school, uh, and that it ignores existing obscenity law when it comes to books that are allowable in school libraries. It doesn't consider the whole book as a complete work, which has been a hallmark of obscenity law up to this point. Instead, it says if there's a sexual act in the text of the book, that it can't be allowed. Okay. We'll look forward to your reporting in 2024. Um, IPR's Grant Gerlock. Thanks for now, Grant. Yeah, good to be with you, Ben. Good to have you on. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Continuing a quick, very quick survey of some of the biggest stories covered this year by IPR and Midwest uh, newsroom reporters. Uh, join now for a few minutes with uh, uh, IPR health reporter Natalie Krebs. Hi, Natalie. Hey, Ben. We have to dash through a number of items. It's been a lot of uh, health-related news you've been covering this year. Should we start with the AG's office? Uh, We have a new AG, the Plan B reimbursements. This is for rape victims. Right. This was something that happened not long after Attorney General Brenna Byrd took office in January. She basically, she paused reimbursements for Plan B through the Victim Compensation Fund. This is a fund at the AG's office. It's funded by not taxpayer dollars, but criminal penalties and fees. 
they pay for rape kits. They pay for the medication that comes with them to prevent STIs. Uh, traditionally, they paid for Plan B, sometimes even abortions. And when uh, Attorney General Byrd took office, she paused those reimbursements for Plan B and the rare abortion that had been coming from the Victim Compensation Fund. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the reason for the pause? Uh, just basically, she wasn't sure it was a proper use of state dollars to go to something like that. I mean, she's gotten pushback. These aren't taxpayer dollars. They're actually, again, they're coming from criminal penalties and fees. But yeah, that was just basically the logic. They're reviewing the program, and she wasn't sure that that was something that was appropriate to be funded. Okay, we'll have news on that, no doubt, in in 2024. Medicaid, disenrollment, the often termed unwinding. Tell us why tens of thousands of Iowans have been disenrolled from Medicaid. This is a huge thing that the Department of Health and Human Services is doing. I mean, every single state agency across the U.S. is. So during the pandemic, um, under the public health emergency, state agencies weren't allowed to disenroll anyone from Medicaid. You know, typically they do this when they find that someone's no longer eligible. Even if you weren't eligible, your income went up, you stayed on during the pandemic. That ended in April. It means that Iowa is currently in the process of reviewing everyone's re-eligibility um, who's on Medicaid uh, to, to see if they still qualify. And they're disenrolling at this point uh, around, I think, 160,000 people have been disenrolled from Medicaid coverage. Yeah. And the implications for these people um, getting health care coverage. Right. I mean, it's sort of unknown. Um, it's an ongoing story. Um, the A lot of the majority of these people have been disenrolled for what's called procedural reasons, basically like not returning paperwork or returning incorrect paperwork. Uh, state health officials say they're sure that these people have other forms of health insurance available. You know, health advocates say they're not really sure, you know, kind of what's happening to some of these people who've been disenrolled for not returning paperwork. Um, it's an ongoing process. It's it's huge. And we're still seeing kind of the fallout of, of what's going on with this. Yeah. And in one particular area that you reported on, fewer postpartum hospitalizations under Medicaid. Yeah, this is something um, a little bit different, but it's coming from the federal government has offered this extension to states, um, this matching option where under your Medicaid program, you can extend postpartum coverage for pregnant women or women who've recently given birth from two months, 60 days to a year. Um, this option's been immensely popular. Most states have taken it to, you know, extend this coverage. Um, it, this coverage is shown to have a lot of benefits. You can screen women for postpartum depression, a lot of complications that can prevent maternal mortality. Iowa lawmakers for two years in a row have decided not to extend it. They say they're, they're still reviewing it and kind of looking into it to see whether or not, you know, they would want to take this kind of extension under their Medicaid program. And very, very quickly, in a minute, this uh, medical malpractice, this new law we have that uh, caps uh, damages there. Yeah, this is another very controversial measure that was passed by the legislature this year. They capped um, non-economic damages, typically known as sort of 
pain and suffering damages at $1 million for private clinics and then $2 million for hospitals. Um, You know, the medical lobby saying basically they need to do this not to bankrupt clinics, to be able to attract doctors to come out here to keep insurance prices low. But you see lawyers saying basically it impedes people's right to be able to sue if they're victims of medical malpractice. Um, It passed. It's still controversial. Um, We're still sin of seeing that issue play out. Okay, IPR health reporter Natalie Krebs. So many important issues in the health sector that you've been covering, Natalie. We look forward uh, to further coverage on these and other themes in the new year. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Coming up after a short break, a conversation I had recently with Katerina Sestarek about new laws in the state, Sheila Brummer, as well as Zachary Oren Smith, and Holly Edgel with the Midwest Newsroom. A quick survey of some of the biggest news. Uh, in this soon-to-be-passed year and themes that very often carrying over into 2024. Also, I'll talk with the South Carolina politics reporter Caitlin Bird about Nikki Haley. Uh, that's all still to come. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Just a couple of weeks left of the year, 2023. Wow, so much has happened around the world, across the nation, and here in Iowa in the news. Uh, Today, we're checking in with a number of the reporters you hear regularly on IPR to get a sense of some of the major state news they've covered uh, this year and what they'll be watching in 2024. I'm joined now by Katerina Sestarek, IPR's state government reporter. Hi, Katerina. Hi, Ben. Well, so much happened uh, in state government in 2023. Let's march through it and have you uh, sort of flesh out and remind us uh, what did happen. Let's. How about we start with government reorganization, a big overhaul there. Right. Um, in this past legislative session, um, the governor proposed and the legislature passed this massive 1,500-page bill that shrunk the number of state agencies from 37 to 16. Um, so that work has been just underway in the past several months, agencies merging um, into a smaller number of agencies, employees moving to different buildings, um, some unfilled state positions are being cut, And over the next four years, um, the governor estimated that all of this will save the state and federal government $215 million. Um, The Legislative Services Agency had a lower estimate for the savings, but it's just this kind of thing that's going to have to play out over a while for, I think, that to become more clear. Um, And the governor has even said that there will be more to come on government reorganization in the next legislative session. Okay, so it wasn't one and done. There may be more of that to come in 2024. Uh, A major theme of uh, new law in Iowa, and it's um, extending into 2024, we know. Um, uh, We have the so-called fetal heartbeat uh, law. Uh, Tell us uh, where that stands and remind us about what was passed by the legislature and signed by the governor here. 
Well, Iowa has had a so-called fetal heartbeat abortion ban since 2018, um, but that was struck down by a court. And then um, earlier this year, the Iowa Supreme Court was split in a case related to that law, and the law remained blocked and couldn't be enforced. So then the Iowa legislature came back in July for a special session where they passed the law again. Um, So this bans most abortions as early as six weeks of pregnancy. Um, But that was also immediately blocked by a court, um, and it's going back to the Iowa Supreme Court. Um, Mm -hmm. So now in the next um, next several months, the Iowa Supreme Court is expected to hear this case again. And then um, by the end of June 2024, um, Iowans will know whether or not um, that abortion ban can be enforced in the state. And what question or questions uh, is the Iowa Supreme Court looking at to decide uh, that law? Um, They'll be looking at, you know, whether the Iowa Constitution contains any protections for abortion rights. Um, There was previously strong protections for abortion rights um, that were found in the Iowa Constitution, but then this current Supreme Court disagreed with that. And now it's kind of just left of the question of whether they're going to completely, you know, kind of gut that from the Iowa Constitution or if they're going to um, let those protections stand. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about gender-affirming care, new laws there. What are they? Um, the Iowa legislature barred um, minors in Iowa from receiving um, or from or barred doctors from giving minors puberty blockers, gender-affirming hormones, and gender-affirming surgeries. Um, and so transgender minors in the state have now been um, traveling out of state to get these medications and this this health care um, that they, you know, that they doctors have told them they need to affirm their gender identity. Um, and so they are, um, you know, I think struggling. There's long waiting lists um, in other states for this type of care. Um, Republicans passed this in a very short time frame during the, the last legislative session. They said that it, um, you know, protects kids who they feel uh, are making life-altering decisions without really being able to make those kinds of decisions at such a young age. And um, Democrats largely argued that this puts transgender kids' lives at risk. Mm -hmm. Anything to watch there as we look toward 2024? Not that I know of other than just, you know, the continued impact to um, transgender kids in Iowa. Um, To my knowledge, there hasn't been any um, lawsuits filed over that here. Mm -hmm. Uh. In 2023, um, Iowa Governor Reynolds signed into law new limits on public assistance. Remind us of that. Right. Um, This was a bill that will deny um, SNAP benefits, food assistance, to households with more than $15,000 in assets. And there's some exceptions to that. Um, And it also requires real-time eligibility verification for food and health care assistance for low-income Iowans. Um, This this bill has not, or this law has not really been implemented yet, so it really remains to be seen how it will affect people. Um, the state has until July 1st of 2025 to really start um, enforcing this. Mm-hmm. We have some new child labor laws passed and signed by the governor in effect. What are they? Um, there was kind of a wide-ranging law that, you know, it adjusted 
um, what hours teens could work, what sorts of things they could do at at their jobs, um, and how late at night that they could stay at work. Um, So that was kind of a big fight in the legislature between Republicans and Democrats. Um, You know, business groups were wanting this help with uh, developing the workforce and with filling a workforce shortage. And there were, you know, labor unions and Democrats arguing that these are child safety rules that are there for a reason and shouldn't be loosened. Um, and ultimately that passed and was signed into law by the governor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Some of the highlights of uh, what passed in the legislature this past year. Katarina, before we go, I want to ask uh, what else will you be watching in 2024? Um, I'll be watching this next legislative session to see, you know, what Republicans do. They say they want to do more income tax cuts. And will this be the year that they go down the path of eliminating the income tax? Um, And I'll also be watching if the Iowa Utilities Board gives permission to summit to build a carbon dioxide pipeline across the state. All right. Katarina Sestarek, IPR's state government reporter. Happy holidays to you, and we'll talk to you again in the new year, I'm sure, many times. Thanks, Ben. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This hour, a quick survey of some of the biggest stories covered this year by IPR and Midwest Newsroom reporters. Certainly one of the tragic Iowa stories we remember. On May 28th, an apartment building in Davenport collapsed, killing three men, and uh, Cruz had to amputate a woman's leg to rescue her from the rubble. Joined now by Zachary Oren-Smith, IPR's Eastern Iowa reporter. Hi, Zach. Hey, Ben. What did an investigation of the collapse reveal? When the city dropped a ton of documents last over the summer, the uh, outcome, right, was, uh, I mean, obvious, right? There were many points along the way where um, the electrical company inspectors, you know, cited this building for uh, deficiencies, right? The uh, even even the uh, engineering firm, Select Structural, had said, you know, there are a number of things that we need to do in order to make this place structurally sound, right? While no one called for an immediate evacuation, um, it was clear as early as February, right, that the electrical company wasn't sending employees to work on it because it was unsafe uh, to send their workers. Mm-hmm. So, who or what is to blame? That's complicated, right? And unfortunately, we're kind of, uh, everything is ca- tied up in courts right now. It's a hurry up and wait uh, kind of a story at the moment. You have uh, currently a wrongful death lawsuit uh, from uh, the family of Brandon Colvin Sr. You've got a number of uh, competing interests ranging from former contractors to residents of the building all looking to try to find accountability somewhere in this. Um, and unfortunately, we're kind of, as we as the public kind of look on the outside, we're kind of waiting to see what that might look like. And, and Zach, this uh, question has bedeviled you uh, as well as the public. Why so difficult for the public uh, and journalists to get answers to what happened? You know, on one part, when the lawsuit started rolling in, that was around the time the city stopped doing their daily press conferences. Um, and, you know, at the, once, uh, once a a public official entity, et cetera, is tied up in a lawsuit. You know, it, it, they're they're advised by mo- most legal counsel to avoid uh, making statements and uh, statements related to the case in public to let the courts kind of kind of kind of mete out justice. Um, and so, so on that front, it's been challenging. On the other, um, you know, there's also been a ton of turnover at the city of Davenport uh, recently. Corey Spiegel, the city administrator, departed with a 1.6 million dollar payout. Um, and uh, you know when the uh, along with her came uh, one of the the sort of primary communications officer for the city who's gone to the local school district, 
I mean, right now, I think a lot of us are kind of wondering from the outside kind of what the next steps of this are, but, you know, who the new administration will be, what, uh, you know, kind of how they will handle inspections in the future, what will change look like? I mean, I think that we're waiting to see what comes out next. Okay. Zachary Oren-Smith, IPR's Eastern Iowa reporter on that May 28th, the partial apartment building collapse in Davenport. We'll be watching uh, for further developments. Zach, thanks so much. You're welcome, Ben. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Most of this hour, a quick survey of some of the biggest stories covered by IPR and Midwest newsroom reporters. With me now, Sheila Brummer, Western Iowa reporter. Hi, Sheila. Hi, how are you doing? I'm fine. Last month, a Woodbury County supervisor's wife found guilty of 52 counts of voter fraud. Remind us what Kim Taylor did. Well, Kim Fong Taylor was convicted of 52 counts of voter fraud. She faces up to 260 years in prison when she's sentenced. A date hasn't been set yet for that sentencing. But prosecutors said that she schemed to get illegal votes from the Vietnamese community for her husband, Jeremy Taylor. He had a couple elections in 2020. And prosecutors say that she reached out the Vietnamese community, illegally filled out ballots and turned them in. Mm -hmm. What's been the fallout for her husband, Jeremy Taylor? Well, he was named an unindicted co-conspirator, and he's on the Board of Supervisors. There are five members, all Republicans. Three of the members, including the board chairman, were very vocal. They wanted him to resign his post. He did not. He did resign the vice chairmanship, but that's basically a symbolic role. They have a new election every year for new leadership. And so he only really was going to oversee a few meetings as vice chair. Mm -hmm. How common is voter fraud? So this is a very unusual case. And to have 52 counts. Yeah. Okay, Sheila, a quick look ahead at what you'll be covering in the coming weeks and into 2024. Well, the big issue is wind turbines. We had that big ruling from the Dickinson County Board of Adjustment, basically turning down a permit for a wind farm in the Iowa Great Lakes area. That's always an ongoing issue because more communities are concerned about wind turbines. There are other environmental issues as well. Water quality is always a big concern. School funding, a big topic here in Sioux City. COVID-19 relief money is ending. The district needs to overcome a $7.5 million shortfall. And that's an issue districts across the state will be facing as well. Western Iowa Tech Community College also faces a couple of federal lawsuits surrounding foreign students. The college is accused of luring students to Sioux City, and they are accused of human trafficking by having those students do hard jobs to help pay off the tuition. We're sure glad you're there covering this important news. Sheila Brummer, Western Iowa reporter. Until 2024, Sheila, thank you. Happy New Year. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, of course, a review of some of the biggest stories from 2023, which we're doing this hour, wouldn't be complete without touching on a threat facing not only the Midwest, but also the world, climate change. Climate change means Americans will likely experience more days of hazardous heat, and uh, most of the country's housing, we found out this year, isn't built in a way to counter extreme heat. Holly Edgel is with us, managing editor for the Midwest Newsroom, joining us from St. Louis. Hi, Holly. Hi. So remind us, Holly, what are the predictions for the Midwest within just a few years by 2050? Sure. Well, uh, we have data that shows that in about 30 years, we can expect more days of the year 
to reach a, a heat index of 125 degrees Fahrenheit. And that heat index is what we like to call the feels like. So it'll feel like 125 degrees Fahrenheit on more days. And part of the problem is that it's so hot during the day that at night, temperatures don't have a chance to cool down, and then it just perpetuates. We got a taste of that this year. We sure did, yeah. And so what you dug in to at the, the Midwest Newsroom for IPR is um, looking into designing and constructing homes that can protect Americans from the uh, extreme heat to come, right? What did you find out? That's right. And in fact, I interviewed your state climatologist, uh, Justin Glisson, mm-hmm. and he said quite flatly, we're not ready. We're not ready for what's happening now. We're not ready for what's happening in 30 years. And there's a lot of reasons. If you want to start at the very high level, I spoke to an, an expert who said that nationally, we do not have a cohesive climate adaptation strategy as a nation. So that starts the ball rolling in a way that is not great. Um, Adaptation is left to states, cities. Often, as you know, cities are not politically aligned with perhaps states Mm -hmm. and vice versa. So therefore, it gets more uh, sort of disconnected. And one of the key issues is building codes. Uh, Building codes are designed to keep us safe. They are updated every three years on an international and national level. However, it's really voluntary for states and counties to and cities to adopt the latest codes. And what happens with latest codes is they do, you know, in- incorporate the latest climate-friendly, uh, sustainable technology, which is expensive. And so you have this sort of tension between what it costs to build a climate-resilient home that will keep us safe from the heat and other climate impact and the cost. And that's kind of where we are. Um, There are cities in the Midwest that are still going by the 2018 code simply because they have not um, been able to agree, perhaps as a city, to upgrade to the point where they would have to require builders to pay more for their supplies, for their equipment, for the kinds of HVAC that will be in the home. Mm -hmm. And so it's really a really um, frustrating quandary. Yeah. So we'll be watching this and the the Midwest newsroom, uh, no doubt, uh, follow-up stories on how homes in the Midwest need to be ready for more days of scorching heat to come because of climate change. In the final minute that we have here, Holly, uh, tell us, what does the Midwest newsroom have for priorities for, for the coming year? Sure. Well, we're going to continue to focus on climate adaptability. We want to find out who out there is doing their job to make sure that we are safe in uh, extreme temperatures. We're also going to be focusing on housing, which goes hand in hand with that. We've done a lot about affordability and access. And we're also going to be looking at health care and education. So four main pillars of content, um, you know, quite broad, but we really want to focus on those areas that we feel like we can bring something to to for Iowa as well as our other states, which are Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska, within our partnership. Wonderful. Holly Agile, Managing Editor of the Midwest Newsroom. We'll be looking forward to your valuable reporting in the new year. Holly joining us from St. Louis. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up after a short break, our series Home State View continues. Caitlin Bird will join us, a senior politics reporter uh, with the Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, for a Home State View of Nikki Haley after this break. It's River to River from IPR News.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Next, another in our River to River series, Home State View. It's a chance for us to get to know the presidential candidates before caucus day here in Iowa on January 15th. Now, in this series, we're aiming for a different angle on these candidates than is typically given by the week-by-week press coverage that we consume. So the focus here, not on their latest political pronouncements or slogans or even gaffes. Rather, it's a chance for us to discuss their family and political roots, their state roots, to get to know these political figures by talking with journalists from their home states. Thus the name of our series, Home State View. Joining us today to discuss Nikki Haley's rise is Caitlin Bird, senior politics reporter with The Post and Courier. The Post and Courier is the main daily newspaper in Charleston, South Carolina. In fact, the largest newspaper in the state. Caitlin Bird, welcome to our program. Thank you so much for having me. We're so interested in finding out some background on Nikki Haley, the second woman of color ever to seek the GOP's nomination for the White House. Of course, United States ambassador to the U.N. for a couple of years and the governor of South Carolina for more than a couple of years. Now, you've been in South Carolina uh, uh, since 2016, so you really covered her um, the tail end of her governorship. But let's start a little bit before uh, that. Start a little bit by telling us about Nikki Haley's youth growing up in the 1970s in South Carolina and uh, very formative here, her family background as an Indian American. Correct. And she talks about those formative years a lot. She actually anchored her presidential launch video by standing on the train tracks in her hometown of Bamberg, South Carolina. Now, a lot of people have heard of Charleston, South Carolina, and maybe even Columbia, South Carolina, because it's the capital. But Bamberg is a very small town, one of those two stoplight towns in the South here. And Nikki Haley was one of four children. They were the only Indian American family in that small town. And in that kind of small town, there's no hiding. She really does discuss those formative years at length on the trail, describing how she was an outsider, even in her hometown, saying that she was a brown girl in a black and white world. Uh, One of those formative memories was competing in the Little Miss Bamberg pageant um, in her retelling of it. There was uh, entry and contestants for white little girls and black little girls, but they didn't know what to do with Nikki and her sister. And allegedly, they gave her a beach ball and said, essentially, sorry, kid, you're out of luck. Hmm. And that really stuck with Nikki Haley because she wanted to compete just like everyone else. But she didn't fit into some neat and tidy mold. And that is a story that would be repeated as she entered into the world of politics. But she was not a lawyer. She was an accountant, which is also a different path. And we're used to seeing since oftentimes we see attorneys and those who work in the, the law side of things go toward taking a job that is making laws. So even when she actually enters the world of politics, Nikki Haley's background differs from those of her male peers. So walk us through her political rise. Uh, she served in South Carolina as in the House of Representatives, uh, then became governor, 
Um, tell us about how she first got her feet wet in the world of politics. She entered this male-dominated political world of South Carolina as a true underdog, if there ever was one. She entered public life in 2004 when she ran for that state seat in the House of Representatives here. But she actually wound up challenging the legislature's longest-serving incumbent. Funnily enough, at the time, there were rumors flying that this gentleman, Larry Kuhn, was actually going to retire. So that's why Nikki Haley threw her hat in the ring. Uh, turns out, he didn't retire. So she ends up battling one of the most powerful figures in the legislature at the time. And she outworks him. She does all the back to basics campaigning that you would expect. She shakes hands. She hands out donuts. She's talking to people in the parent drop off line. And she simply outworks him. And it really surprises a lot of people in the state because that election in particular you know, he really represented in many ways this good old boy system of someone who had been in the state for an exceptionally long period of time, who ascended to a position of power, and who stayed there for as long as he had seen fit and as long as people would send him back. And Nikki Haley came in and really shook up the establishment. How did the, she then come to be governor of South Carolina? She uh, won the election in 2020. Uh, 10 and and served as governor from 2011 through 2017 before she resigned to become uh, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Right. And she ran again as an underdog in 2010. She had been reelected back in 2008, but she ran against people who were better funded and better known in the state. People like then Lieutenant Governor Henry McMaster, who, by the way, is now governor of the state. Uh, She ends up in a runoff election with a congressman at the time who, again, that's a federal office. She's just some state lawmaker from Lexington County, South Carolina. A lot of people thought, well, maybe she can do it. She's worked really hard. But there was a lot of doubt. And actually, there were a lot of really nasty rumors that went around during that race, including claims of infidelity. There was some name calling as it related to her faith um, and some questioning of that. She did She was raised in the Sikh faith, but later converted to Christianity when she married her husband, Michael. But it got pretty ugly pretty fast. But Nikki Haley won. And so once again, she emerges as this underdog. And that is something that we hear a lot from Nikki Haley on the trail, which is don't underestimate me. Mm -hmm. Um, And it should be worth it should be worth noting that when she first ran for that state house seat in 2004, she Uh, opened up a Chinese fortune cookie and she ended up putting it on her computer screen at the time. And those words uh, were winners do what losers don't want to. And now that slogan appears on T-shirts and bumper stickers that her presidential campaign is selling. Hmm. As governor, I guess we connect Nikki Haley, governor of South Carolina, that time for her with uh, taking down the Confederate flag over the South Carolina Capitol. Uh, Talk a little bit about that and what else she is known for during her period as governor. Yeah, 2015 was a formative, if not consequential year for Nikki Haley, both politically and as a governor. After her historic election in 2010, you know, fast forward to 2015. And this is probably the year that many people outside of South Carolina start to hear her name. Now, a couple of things happened in 2015, just to really lay the scene for how significant that moment was when the Confederate battle flag came down. 
the shooting of Walter Scott. Uh, he was gunned down by a white police officer in North Charleston. That happened in April. A couple of months later, that mass shooting of nine black parishioners takes place at Charleston's Mother Emanuel Church. Um, a couple of months after that, or about 22 days, I believe, there was the success, successful removal of the Confederate battle flag from the state house grounds in July, which was something that at the time, this was something that many politicians had tried and failed to do. But Nikki Haley was the one who actually pulled this off. Um, obviously, this was a very sad and depressing moment. One of the people who was killed in that shooting was actually a state senator. And I remember reading and talking with state lawmakers in the years afterward about how formative this moment was. Mm. And part of that was how she handled this as a governor and as a politician. What happened was she actually reached out to state lawmakers, both Republicans and Democrats, both Republican congressional members, as well as Congressman Jim Clyburn, the state's only Democrat elected to Congress at the time, who, by the way, actually fought for civil rights. She said to these lawmakers, both Republican and Democrats, if you stand with me, I'll be forever grateful. And if you choose not to stand with me, I will hold no ill will and I will respect you. And I will ne never let anybody know that you were in this room and what you said and what you think. Hmm. And she has kept that word to this day. She has not told us who said no in that room initially and if they changed their votes on the floor. But the flag comes down and it's this huge historic moment in South Carolina that many people thought would never come. Yeah. Um, we're running out of time here, Caitlin, but I wanted to fast forward here a little bit to, you know, she is appointed um, as U.S. ambassador to the U.N. by then President Trump. She resigns after about two years in that post. Um, talk a little bit about that resignation and how she has navigated her break from former President Trump, especially in the field of foreign policy, where others have broken with the president in his close orbit and, and incurred his wrath, haven't they? Yes, very much so. In fact, she was probably the only Trump appointee from any of his cabinet posts who actually got the red carpet treatment. When she left, she wasn't fired on Twitter she submitted her resignation letter. She had a sit down with the president in the Oval with a nice press availability, lots of pretty pictures, shaking hands, kind words exchanged. And even though Trump had appointed her to this position, which, by the way, she didn't have a ton of foreign policy experience going into that United Nations post, but she broke with the president on a number of foreign policy stances, like when she declared that Russia was guilty of war crimes in Syria. But she did find places to work with the president, too. Uh, standing by him when they left, when the, the United States left the Paris Climate Accord, for example. Um, but she she has also had moments on the world stage where she literally was standing on her own. It was Haley against the world. Um, there's a really famous picture where you see her um, being the only member of the foreign uh, of the Security Council um, after there was a vote to contend the United States for its actions on formally recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and plans to move the U.S. embassy there. Um, she was the only one who cast a vote against that. So it was Haley against the world. But since then, she left office. She started her political action commission or political action committee, I should say. And she has really oscillated very finely between supporting the president, the former president, and also um, finding places where she disagrees with him. In her launch, for example, she called for a new generation of leadership 
wink, wink, not Trump, but me. She has also uh, said things like the pres president was the right president at the right time, but it's time that we move on from him now. She's also started describing him as an agent of chaos. But um, we know that President Trump is somebody who demands loyalty of those within his orbit. And my understanding is that she did ruffle some feathers uh, within the Trump administration when she had initially said that she would not run against him if he ran again. And then she was actually the first Republican to challenge him formally in this contest. So she's giving it a whirl once again as the underdog in the race. And she continues to say, watch me, just wait and see what I can do. Uh, Caitlin, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about something that our listeners may remember because it broke through to national news when Nikki Haley was U.S. ambassador to the U.N. And uh, she had, a, I guess, a run-in with the uh, director of the National Economic Council. Tell us about that. Yes, this is probably one of her most memorable moments at the United Nations. And it came in about 2018, at the time, Nikki Haley had gone on television here to say that Russian sanctions were imminent at the time, which rustled the feathers of National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow, who had suggested that Haley had suffered, quote, momentary confusion about what the Trump administration was actually planning to do. Now, instead of going quiet, apologizing, issuing some sort of statement at the time, instead, she replied, with all due respect, I don't get confused. And in a really amazing moment, Kudlow actually apologized to her. Wow. And we see this in the debates that Nikki Haley has been in. We see this feisty confidence, if I can put it that way. That's a good way to put it. She has always been comfortable on the debate stage, and she has no problems standing up and defending herself. And she also has no problem figuring out how to take down her opponents in a way where she can still walk off the stage and, and come across as classy, collected, confident, and knowing her stuff. Caitlin, with this long view, and you've only shared a few of the moments that you're familiar with from uh, Nikki Haley's uh, background and her rise in politics, but I wonder, with your long view, how does her brand that most of us in the U.S., are seeing as a national candidate differ from what she was known for in state politics earlier in her life in South Carolina? Is that a one-to-one -one match or is there any kind of a mismatch? To be honest with you, I don't see much of a mismatch. Nikki Haley has always had this interesting duality about her. That at the same time that she presents herself as an outsider who can go into the establishment and shake things up and change things, she has also equally presented herself as somebody who has the insider's expertise to actually get things done. And it's such an interesting double take to hold both of those truths simultaneously. But we know that politics is a game where people lean into different attributes about themselves as time goes on. And if you're a one-note politician, you're going to have a really hard time getting stuff done. There's always layers of gray. There's always nuances. But with Nikki Haley, to me, there's always these two Nikki Haley's. There's the Haley who's the rabble rouser who was elected on a Tea Party wave into the governor's office with the support of Sarah Palin. 
And then there's also the Nikki Haley, who is somewhat of a unifier, who's someone who says she can go in and get things done and work with people. For example, bringing down the Confederate battle flag in a state that had tried many times and failed to do so. So she really is a master of walking a tightrope and such a fine line. And she does it all while wearing heels. Mm. And and it's so interesting. It makes you wonder um, how this ties in with her early childhood uh, as an Indian-American uh, raised by immigrant parents um, and her conflicted identity, if you want to put it that way. I think you put it that way in an article you had, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and if it's not so much conflicted, it's at the very least, it's complicated. But at the same time, she will describe herself first and foremost as an American. And I think there's something to be said for somebody who's seeking a position of power who can say, I may be different than what you're used to seeing up here on this stage, or I may seem other to you, but listen to how I'm similar. Listen to how we actually agree more often than we disagree. And that's always been a political sweet spot for her, no matter what office she was running for. Okay, thank you very much. Caitlin Bird, senior politics reporter with The Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina, as part of our Home State View series. Uh, This time, taking a Home State View of Nikki Haley. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Thank you for having me. That does it for today. Today's program produced by Danny Gear, our executive producer, Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.